0: Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul rees Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here.
1: And I'm Jennifer Waits.
0: Radio is ubiquitous. It's around us all the time, such that we often, when well, we don't pay attention and we don't really notice when we're hearing it in the background or we see something radio-themed or radio-adjacent uh, around us. And then we have These fun coincidences, essentially, radio coincidences, if you will. Well, Paul, radio is ubiquitous, so much so that
2: people who love radio like us on this program uh, have noticed how often it's uh, overlooked and sometimes completely left off the screen uh, and left out of the history, like, of uh, big histories, right? The history of the United States, if you don't talk about radio in the 20th century, you've sort of skipped you skipped over a chapter of like a necessary uh, frame of understanding the world, especially like if you're talking about the media landscape.
0: Yeah. And, and Jennifer and I have had a couple of radio coincidences uh, very recently that we would like to share and and talk about here on the program. Jennifer, you mentioned uh, this one that has to do with a, uh, a current television program uh, that, that is, that is currently fairly popular uh, that has a uh, coincidence with your own radio past. Tell us more.
1: Yes. So on a prior episode, episode 298, I, I gave a little preview of this. I talked about how the HBO Max limited series, Mayor of Easttown has a college radio station on it. And the radio station is a very minor character, but the radio station happens to be from Haverford college where I went to college. And, I've done a ton of research about the history of Haverford College Radio, so talk about a coincidence. It was a complete shock to be watching this show and all of a sudden see a fictional representation of my college radio station and And the show is it's a it's a limited series, so you can still watch it, but it had a limited number of episodes and and it's already completed. And the finale weekend, something like 4 million viewers tuned in. So this was a very, very popular television show. So I was getting a lot of emails and texts from friends who were asking me if I had seen this episode because they know that I did radio at Haverford and what a crazy coincidence. So on on the Radio Survivor show, I talked a bit about how similar the station looked to my radio station back when I did college radio in the nineteen eighties. But I was merely speculating about how this radio station came to be.
0: And this and this series is set not in the nineteen eighties, but basically in contemporary times, correct?
1: Right, yeah. It's set in twenty nineteen. And and I knew that I knew that it wasn't filmed at Haverford College. I you know, I I could tell that it was a creation of a radio station, right. that it wasn't a real radio station. It's
2: not off base. Is it, Jennifer, that your experience at Haverford College Radio Station is, is Seminal? your... Seminal? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's where Jennifer Waits begins their journey, uh, uh, loving college radio and and then loving all radio. I mean, you already loved all radio, but this is where your focus on college radio...
1: Oh, I mean, this is, is like a, a true origin story. Yeah. And, and I'm one of... I'm one of the few people writing about college radio culture. So right. it's just kind of hilarious that, and, and so, so college radio these days in 2021, it is rarely shown on right. television or in the movies. So so every time I happen to see a college radio station on TV or in the movies, uh, especially in a current show, it's notable. And so the odds that there would be a college radio station on TV and that it would be my college radio station is
2: truly bizarre. Right. I just I just want to jump <laughs> ahead and mention that there's another there's another HBO show that we've talked about on Radio Survivor before because of its connection to the history of radio, and it was uh because we've uh loved uh, the story of Amy Semple McPherson, a, a a woman who had a radio career that was um hugely important in the nineteen twenties and thirties and there's an HBO television show that used her story and did, like, not one time did the word radio or was a physical radio or was anyone listening to the radio. They just skipped that scenario on this other HBO show where radio could have played a central role in the plot and the story because one of the characters was a radio station owner and a woman of, you know, a really wonderful Way to to go about telling the story, right? And like Paul uh, yeah. said at the beginning, or how I hijacked it and said, like radio is just left out, and a key way to understand that story was like jettisoned from from the board. So it's ex- it's really exciting that Mayor of Easttown used college radio in the story,
1: right? And. And, you know, radio, college radio and radio is rarely central to a story these days. And and it's not central in *Mayor of Easttown, either. The show is, is the story about the small town detective in Delaware County outside of Philadelphia. It's about a murder investigation. And so this is a very, um, I guess, you know, friends of mine would call it a B plot. Uh, you know, this is a minor story. And the radio station only appears in two episodes. And, you know, so one of the characters finds herself there because she's in a band. She's a high school student who has a band. And they go to play at the Haverford College radio station. And then she develops, there's a love interest with the DJ. So I was so interested in how, so curious about, how this radio station was created because it was my college radio station in a way. So I ended up reaching out to HBO and talked to the production designer for Mayor of Easttown. And they the show has been getting a lot of attention because it's been so good at depicting these very specific details of Delaware County, Pennsylvania. They took a lot of time working on all of the actors worked on their accents um they they scouted out wardrobe ideas from local grocery stores and and so a lot of people have been commenting about about the show and how amazing the details were but but people haven't been writing about the radius the minor radio station scenes so um so i hope it was kind of a breath of fresh air to talk to the production designer about the radio station because obviously a lot of effort went into the set. It it looks like, so I've been touring college radio stations, you know, in addition to doing college radio and knowing a lot about Haverford College Radio, I've visited a ton of radio stations all over the country. And if any of you have read any of my posts, they're full of photos and and I can talk about the commonalities. You know, often a college radio station has sticker-covered walls, posters all over the place, a ratty couch, Uh, old equipment, records, you know, LPs all over the walls. And so this radio station that they designed to look like, the one at Haverford College has all of that. And it was done on a soundstage. So they, they built it entirely from scratch. Filming of the show started prior to COVID, and they halted production and then had to resume. So in fact, the radio station scenes originally weren't part of the script and and so it, this meeting uh, between t- two of these characters would have taken place in a different manner previously at a big outdoor concert setting and then they ended up taking it to the radio station which i was told ended up being kind of a better idea after oh, so all so is
0: that that was a reaction to covid because they could work in a, in a socially isolated distant uh, Soundstage, rather than having to have bring on probably hundreds of extras, yeah, which right? is exactly to make it look like a festival atmosphere, which is
2: extremely poignant for the the year and a half of of history that we've all lived through. That that the that college radio as a setting uh, is more of a, um, has this uh, resiliency even in fiction uh, during the pandemic, as as opposed to you know you know while while all live music was completely shut down in reality radio radio continued because it's a uh, very Small. It's a, such a. It's a smaller
0: right. space. Even though COVID itself does not figure into the series, it, right? It, it was just the production yeah. uh, adapting to uh, to needing to have these characters meet, essentially.
1: Exactly. But the intimacy of the space, uh, you know, like Eric That's is really sort of saying there, the intimacy of the space. We could say that that mirrors, you know, the intimacy of radio. So so I learned all the secrets about how they put this together there. I, I was very curious if they had looked at any of my photos because I have photos <laughs> from Haverford college. Um, and then
2: they had to call their lawyer to,
1: <laughs> right. So I, um, I have pictures that my dad took of me at the Haverford college radio station in the 1980s. And there's one in particular I'm standing in front of, these wooden shelves full of vinyl lps and and i tweeted about this like right after i saw the first episode i i tweeted a screenshot of from mayor of east town of the dj standing in front of these wooden shelves and a shot of me and the shelves look so similar it's crazy so i mentioned to the production designer keith cunningham i said you know i've posted all these photos and he's and he was kind of like oh, yeah, you know, you found us out kind of thing. Like, yeah, we we did a lot of research. We looked at the Haverford photos. Um, and, and so they were inspired by a Haverford college and pictures of, you know, what the Haverford station looked like over the years. And you can see those details in the record library. You can see it in the DJ booth has orange framing around the window, which looks similar to photos that I actually took. Of the station in 2009, there is this couch with wooden, really thick wooden arms, and so many Haverford alums. You know, because a lot of people from Haverford were chatting about the show, said that looks exactly like dorm couches there. And in fact, I and in some of my photos, I had chairs that resembled that, uh, hmm. that couch. And, and I just found pictures from the 80s when I was in college. And in fact, we had those same couches in our, in our dorms back in the 80s, too. So it showed up in the 80s and the 2000s. And, and the production designer said that they wanted to have the entire show, they wanted the entire show to have these layers of history. And that was important for them to show that in the radio station, too. So they intentionally had things like reel-to-reel machines in the booth. They had the old couch. They had people on the crew do things to the couch to make it look more weathered mm-hmm. and, like, intentionally adding stains, maybe removing a leg. Um, and, and it's amazing. You know, the this, this station only appears in two episodes, and the care that they took is just incredible.
0: Right, and and I think I mean, and it's authentic to a context to probably of a student radio station, or or really a community radio station. That if once it's been around for decades, they tend to accumulate. Yeah. Right, it, it's you might find a reel-to-reel recorder that nobody uses that hasn't actually well, been turned on in years, but will sit there until something necessitates its removal or changing. The yeah. same thing with a cla- a couch that may ha- you know and dorm furniture right is sort of. Fundamentally built to withstand a significant degree of abuse, and therefore also can stand stay around much longer past maybe the time in which it was remotely uh, fashionable. Well, and I think another thing say that, and I think
2: another thing that Jennifer is driving at that's really fun is that radio people who have spent time inside of radio stations are painfully aware that when the workspace of, of radio. Be it commercial radio or college radio in this case, or non-commercial community radio sometimes I've seen it when those workspaces are depicted on the screen, uh, they can get all sorts of things just wrong wildly oh. wrong because it's a, a, you know it, where it's and you know radio is 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 behind a, a a screen, as it were. There are no pictures being shared with the world of how radio stations right. look unless you work there. So to have this radio station in Mayor of Easttown on HBO um, so lovingly depicted as a real space with history that reminds someone like Jennifer Waits, who's probably the Earth's preeminent expert in Haverford College Radio. I know. <laughs> um, if Jennifer thought they did a good job, they they clearly did a great job. I know I've seen radio depicted on screen in all sorts of, uh, media, um, in ways in which feel very silly. Like there's, it's,
1: it's, it's usually wrong. And usually people are talking, you know, far away from the microphone, not wearing headphones, not wearing headphones. It, it never makes sense. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, there were alumni from Haverford who said, you know, several people mentioned, well, at least one person thought it was filmed at Haverford, which I mm. thought was kind of hilarious um, because they had seen a Haverford, they'd seen an H like through the window in the hallway. And so they thought for sure it was filmed on campus. Um, I just want
0: to. And there's no indication that they went to campus, correct? Right. So this is a soundstage yeah. presumably in Hollywood or Los Angeles? No,
1: no, oh? actually, it was a soundstage in Pennsylvania.
0: Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, wow. not so they they stayed the, unseen.
1: Yeah, hmm. in the same county that was inspired, that really inspired the whole show. So that's pretty incredible. Um, I, I wanted to point out that you know while Haverford was an influence on the design of the radio station, the the people on the team also had their own visions of of college radio in mind. So the production designer remembered being in college and visiting a basement station, so he wanted it to be in a basement. In fact, the Haverford station was also in a basement, um, and and there were others who kind of chimed in about things that that they wanted, and and another another thing that I thought was really interesting. So they'd seen the pictures of the shelves full of vinyl, and they were like, "I wonder if we could actually do that without you know, can we accomplish that in this in this set?" And they ended up renting around five thousand LPs, and and so it's rented records that you see on the wall. And then all the stickers and posters and everything on the wall, their graphic designer designed everything. Hmm. And then they had crew layering the walls. They even thought about parts of the station that might be older. And so they layered those even more with flyers and posters. They had band t-shirts kind of tossed around. Because
2: every sticker in a college radio station is somebody else's trademark but in right. this fictionalized college radio station, uh, they needed to make sure that everything was cleared.
1: So there was a whole, what was cool for me to hear, there was a whole story in mind. You know, the production designer was saying, yeah, they've got CDs in there. They might not play them anymore, but they're kind of nostalgic about the out, the sure. artwork. That's why the CDs are still in the station. And, you know, they've got the reel-to-reel, they had turntables, and, um, but they've got you know, you could see on one screen, it looks like they've got automation. So it's that, you know, that seemed very realistic. And it was a smaller mixing board, like I've seen at radio stations in, you know, circa 2019. And so that all made sense to me. Um so, so yeah, and I mean, an exciting thing to me also was that they upgraded. Haverford was always, well, when I was there, it was a campus-only station. You could only hear it if you had an AM radio and tuned in on campus in the dorms, or you could hear it in the cafeteria in the dining hall. Um, but on the show, it's, it's actually a broadcast FM station at 101.9 FM, and they changed the call letters to WWXU. And I didn't get the full story on that, but it sounds like probably for legal reasons they they likely chose call letters that that didn't relate to any actual station and they may have had a few choices and then chose one that looked the best graphically <laughs> so sure. like some th- sometimes things are you know a lot of things were very specifically planned out but it sounds like that you know perhaps was more um you know more of a whimsical you know how they came up with the call letters Um, I would love to have one of the stickers, by the way. I don't know. I forgot to ask, you know, could I get a radio station (laughs) sticker of this fictional station that depicts my real station? But, you know, it it was quite a treat to get this backstory because, you know, sometimes you just have to ask rather than and just, you know. Rather than guess. It's very (laughs) exciting
2: because Jennifer Waits goes on radio station tours. It's something that you've done uh, first for I'm gonna say over a decade, and you haven't been on a tour since the pandemic. And in many ways, (laughs) this is this is like your this is a tour that you got to go you you got to tour this fictionalized version of your old college radio station, which appears on the HBO uh, program Mayor of Easttown. And you spoke with the production designer. I, I wonder, like, what else. What else did you learn from them that reminds you of your radio station tours? Like, you went, you, you, how, what else did they, like, get right that made you happy about, uh, you know, the care that they took recreating a radio station uh, on this show?
1: Well, they had, so in this scene, uh, they have this band coming in. The band's called Androgynous, and <laughs> they're, they're setting up to play, they're kind of setting up their gear. And then uh, it's a high school band and they have – a few of them have overindulged. So one of them ends up getting sick on the couch. So, I mean, so this rings true to me because I've been on college radio station tours where people actually tell me not to sit on the couch because <laughs> of all the gross things that have happened on college radio station couches. And I've seen gross things on tours that I did not utter publicly because, you know, it was like, whoa, okay. Um, so – So the band gets, a member of the band gets sick and the band ends up not playing. Um, But the whole setup, like they had moved things aside for the band to play. And and Keith Cunningham, the production designer said, yeah, the the space was designed. and, And you'll notice like in another scene, the couch is in one spot. It's in one spot in the scene where the band's setting up, and then it's in another spot in another scene, which rings true because um, the band was playing in this kind of open area where you had the vinyl records behind them and then the DJ booth, and and that's what happens in college radio. You move stuff aside, set up yeah. the band, and then things get moved back around.
2: Um, I just want to te- echo one more time that you've just mentioned a setting uh, uh, in the fictional mayor of Easttown college radio station, which it appears cuz i i just took a, a a look at the pictures that you posted at radiosurvivor.com that they this this wall of vinyl at the Haverford College radio station both fictional and re- the the real wall of vinyl uh you have a very good photograph from 1987 of of you Jennifer standing in front of the wall and then uh compare that to the wall that they built uh on HBO or for the HBO show on a soundstage and it um it's it's compelling. It's compellingly sim- similar. It, so it's really it is. delightful.
1: It is. Well, I mean when the show was airing I was like, "Oh my god. Oh my god." And so I was like taking pictures of the TV and you know. <laughs> and then, you know, for the article I took kind of proper screenshots. I have and, to say
2: though, I like the 1987 image better than the mayor of Easttown town 2020 image but that's also just um it the the shelving uh, the vinyl shelving in 87 looks a little more dangerous
0: like and I, well, I more splinters. Note that
1: the there were some who- really nice shelves that were built for the haverford station they're yeah. super thick <laughs>
0: That folks should go to radiosurvivor dot com to, to see these see these photos and these comparisons that we 're talking about here we 'll have it in our show notes radiosurvivor dot com slash podcast This is episode number three zero six but jennifer 's also got a story up that uh, at least now as we record at the at the beginning of July. Uh, 2021 um you should find it right there on the front page called creating haverford college radio on mayor of easttown so you can you can see the comparison and some stills uh, to get a sense for the 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 accuracy that 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 uh, eric is referring to
1: yeah and hopefully this brings on a flood of college radio representation on TV we'll we'll, we'll see what happens um there you know this is meant to be kind of a one one time deal the show but it was so successful that a lot of people are asking if there's going to be a season 2 huh. but i i don't think the radio station will come back because um, well i won't i won't i won't be a spoiler but i think that the radio station i think we we have seen all of Haverford radio on Mare of town so it's,
0: it's too bad they can't just uh, transport it wholesale into some college that could use a new radio or, station or spin it off
2: right spin it off into its own Delightful series of... Ooh, yes. Of, uh, and did Jennifer, you spoke with the production designer and I, I, I'm i assuming you asked the question you ask everyone who you speak with uh, on behalf of Radio Survivor, like what was what was their connection to college radio?
1: Yeah, no. So he didn't do college radio, but his friend did. Um, he went to University of Illinois. And so he remembers going to the the radio station there back when it was in the basement of a dorm. And, and so I said, oh, WPGU, because I've actually visited WPGU. But when I visited, it had moved to above-ground right. digs. Um, I remember so he, that.
2: We, we talked about that on Race Survivor. Yeah, uh, so he specifically— kind of got out of the basement and into the light, like in an atrium and sort of— yeah. uh, the, uh, 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 An opposite happy version of some other stories we hear where college radio stations are moved— into less nice spaces, forced to forced to shrink their library, uh, forced to make big changes. This was a, a case of a college radio station um, being given a better space to work with. I
1: know, on the street with a nice window. So, so he remembers visiting WPGU and. The booth in particular is part of the inspiration for the booth that you see on Mayor of Easttown. Mm. Um, And then the director of the series had some college radio memories they shared, but um, I don't know the radio station. And then uh, the creator of the series was from uh, this area of Pennsylvania and, and went to college at Villanova, which is not far from Haverford. So the script was full of these very specific details about the area. And, and they scoped out Haverford. Uh, so they, they did visit Haverford, but there weren't plans to film there. They they had plans to film at Bryn Mawr, which has always been a sister station of Haverford. So there was filming that was supposed to happen there, but it got called off. Like, it was about to happen right when COVID shut everything down. So that would have been interesting uh, to see what would have been filmed at Bryn Mawr. But, you know, the whole show changed... You know, the whole scenario changed with COVID. So we will never know.
0: Well, you're listening to Radio Survivor. You just heard the voice of Jennifer Waits. You've also heard from Eric Klein. I'm Paul Reismandel, and we're here for the love of radio and sound. We'd love to know, what are some of your favorite depictions of radio in the movies, on television, uh, maybe college radio, if you've seen that, or even high school radio has appeared in, in some series. Drop us a line. Send us an email to podcast at radiosurvivor.com or maybe share it to us on social media. We're at radiosurvivor on Twitter. We're also on Facebook. And uh, we can sort of add to our our list, our Jennifer's growing list of shows, uh, that have featured, uh, college radio in some way, shape or form. And, and we, at one point we were, uh, compiling songs, uh, having to do with radio and that is still available on our, on our website at radiosurvivor.com. Uh, and uh, maybe it's time for us to have uh, and host the comprehensive list of, uh, of television and radio that is right. featured college radio or high school radio in
2: particular. Yes. Well, we definitely, yes. we definitely can remind listeners of one of our favorite episodes of the last, I believe nine months is when we spoke with, uh, a, a curator of Turner classic movies who, uh, programmed an entire, uh, I'm I'm, ge- I'm going to guesstimate. It was about 18 hours of programming. That was all, uh, films, About radio or featuring radio or, um, yeah, featuring radio themes. Since since then, I've watched, um, one of the ones that's, uh, an incredible film. I'll mention it in the podcast, I won't derail us. It was a really wonderful film from like 1948 uh, with radio right at the center.
1: Yeah, we'll put links to that in the show notes too. That was a fun episode for sure.
0: Well, we'll kind of move on, I guess, to my radio coincidence. Uh, I recently had a short trip down to southern Oregon wine country down in the Applegate Valley. Um, and I, well, I'll sort of take things in reverse order of something on my, on my trip home. So we're driving up uh, I-5. Uh, we decided to pull off the road in a small town called Sutherland, Oregon. It's about an hour south of Eugene, which is home to the University of Oregon. And uh, we wanted to pop into an outpost of a a relatively new brew pub there for a little bit of a late lunch. And we noticed going in, and in the downtown storefront, uh, next door to the brewery, was a sign for a place called the Radio Days Museum. And we're getting there uh, maybe about 20 minutes after its it's operating hours. It operates for a few hours a day, uh, mostly uh, towards the weekend. Uh, We were there on a Friday. And, I was, and I, So I took a, couple, you know, took a couple pictures of the front, and we went in and had lunch, and I came back out and decided I would try to take some better pictures with my phone. And, and out came the proprietor. His name is Dennis Wright. Um, he invited me in for my own little sort of private tour. And uh, it's, it's quite a thing. I mean, it is basically a storefront. He's converted into a museum dedicated to old-time radio. And in specific, he's a collector of a lot of the memorabilia associated with old-time radio. Uh, And, you know, if you think about how, you know, we think of maybe in modern times, uh, Marvel movies and Star Wars movies have their action figures and all sorts of other types of toys uh, associated with it. I mean, so did The Lone Ranger, all sorts of space fantasy, Little Orphan Annie, um, and different uh, programming like that. So he sort of an amassed a collection of things that might have been uh, giveaways associated with particular sponsors or products. Uh, Some folks uh, may remember you could save up, say, box tops and send them away from cereal or or wrappers from candy or gum and send away, and you could get prizes that would be associated with your favorite programs. He's amassed a lot of these sorts of things, Um, as well as uh, vintage radios. And has set up even uh, a, a kind of vintage uh, broadcast studio in the in, in the front, um, unfortunately not functioning but with a full board an enormous transcription turntable he 's got a wire recorder it's the it's um, the it's a real um echo of jennifer
2: 's segment from the first half of the show today that that both of you have celebrated a um, a very authentic looking fake a yes. broadcast booth <laughs> with reel-to-reel and a microphone and everything. It looks like someone could really do radio
0: from from this chair. And then on weekend evenings, primarily Friday and Saturday night, then he screens radio-themed movies or, or movies that have a radio association uh, for free. So the the museum is free and and the movies are free. He does it just to kind of share. And I asked him, you know, what? Why did you decide to open this museum? Because it really is just his project. And he said, basically, well, he needed a, started needing a place to store all the stuff. <laughs> so so why not why not share it? And and one of the things he does as well is he will take some of the memorabilia sort of out on tour, and and visit uh, nursing homes or uh, retirement communities and, you know, uh, to kind of, you know, share what he has and, and obviously share it with people who, who may have fond memories of of sort of the old-time radio era. And we're really talking about, you know, in that case, you know, radio dramas, right? In and, and the period uh, from radio's early days on through maybe about the 60s or so uh, as, uh, you know, radio drama, as a, at least a commercial form, sort of faded away, uh, being largely uh, replaced by by television.
1: This... This reminds me so much of California Historical Radio Society in Alameda, California. They've been building this radio museum. Well, and it was in one location, and now they're kind of building out this new location. What is shocking me, Paul, is that you're saying that this is sort of a one-person operation. And it yes. it sounds jam-packed. Is it jam-packed with stuff?
0: It. Is, I mean, it is... Uh... It is well displayed. It is well organized. So, and it is really organized like a museum. Things are in cases. Uh, you know, things have labels. So it is. It is not like a storage unit, right? It, you know, it is definitely. And I'll get some pictures up soon on the website at radiosurvivor dot com. You know, and some things more out. You know, and and some things you know behind glass. So you could definitely walk about and and and, and take it in. In, in that way, uh, it's a fairly large space, you know, and he clearly has a, um, you know, a back area, back room uh, that he can utilize for, for additional storage that's that's not uh, open to the public. But and in the center of it is actually he has chairs set up. So there's, you know, about a dozen or so chairs and a screen set up for his screenings of, of radio themed movies. Um, yeah, but it is largely, you know, his collection. And some things are not necessarily uh, vintage, but they may be homage uh, types of more modern things. Uh, but quite a bit of it um, is vintage. I asked him how he accumulated, and he said, as you might expect, in this day and age, that he, you know, certainly acquired quite a bit of it on eBay and other collectors' types of forums. Um, you know, he, uh, the proprietor, uh, you know, said that you know he did go to he went to broadcast school um, in the nineteen eighties. Uh, in Spokane, Washington. Uh, so you know, geographically speaking, Spokane is is on the Idaho border, at uh, the uh, far uh, eastern corner or far eastern side of um, of Washington State. Uh, and at this point, um, where he settled now, there um, in a relatively uh, small town of Sutherland, Oregon. You know, is is in western Oregon, uh, many hundreds of miles miles away. Um, and he does not He does not work in radio. So this is really just, just part of a passion and wanting to sort of share it. And I asked him, you know, if he ever see, if, if children, you know, if kids ever come and visit. And he said they do, that they'll come in and that they uh, seem to be specifically intrigued most of the time with a lot of the, uh, like the space ray guns he has from some of the old science fiction serials. That seems to, to attract quite a bit of attention. And sometimes uh, parents will bring them to come see the movies as well. So that's at the RadioDaysMuseum.org is where you can find it online.
1: What are some of – I've seen some radio exhibits, too. The uh, museum at the San Francisco airport did an incredible radio exhibit that we talked about on the show that had case after case of things that were all in these specific categories. So they had a case of novelty radios, a case of mirrored radios. And and so I learned about all these – you know, really kind of arcane categories. So I'm curious if um, if you saw anything, what jumped out at you? Were there some strange things you'd never seen before?
0: Um, nothing, nothing strange. I mean, it. it you know, I've been exposed to some, you know, radio memorabilia of of sorts many times over the years. So I guess for me, it, it's not. It doesn't stand out necessarily. I mean, it certainly it is the fact that he has as much as he has, really. And you know, it certainly has like an area dedicated to say the Lone Ranger or Little Orphan Annie or the space serials. He does set things up. It's a little less. He said he's not quite really a radio collector. I Meaning, he doesn't collect radio receivers so much, right? But that he has them because it sort of adds to the kind of vibe of the space, if you will. Right. So some of them function, some of them, uh, aren't necessarily functional. They're there more for their kind of aesthetic purposes, uh, than anything else. So it's not really a radio. It's not a, that's why he says it's the radio days museum radio days, sort of conjuring up, you know, the time when people, listen to the radio as their principal form of, of sort of mediated entertainment. And that's why it's, you know, most of it's dedicated to uh, the memorabilia rather than, than receivers themselves. But he, you know, he wants to kind of bring out the, the atmosphere, essentially, right? And some, and some of that, that authenticity. Um, as part of it, he also runs an online uh, radio station. Uh, where you can uh, listen in to to old radio uh, serials called the superhero radio academy radio, the superhero academy radio, sort of noting that a lot of the the programming say Superman uh, outside of the comics would have first been heard on the radio
1: it's it 's such a great reminder of the role that radio played, and you know that 's i think about my dad 's generation where you know when he was a kid he was hearing radio and and his parents would warn him that the radio was going to rot his brain, you know, it was the same sort of worries about television and video games. And so seeing all of those artifacts that kids sent away for for their favorite radio shows, it's such a great reminder of of where radio sat in in people's worlds and in pop culture and that it was such a place where where kids would connect with each other over these characters that they heard on the radio.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, and and it would have been interesting to be there during o- operating hours in case someone were to come through. It was a fairly hot afternoon; the heat wave was coming through there uh, in Southern Oregon. Um, the second so, one, not
2: the not the, the record yes, breaking. Yes, yes.
0: So, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, activity out on on the streets. And Sutherland is a very small town; it's maybe just a couple of thousand people there. Um, you know, clo- the closest uh, big town is called uh, Roseburg, Oregon, and it's there. You know, but it is right there in the I five, and and I had no idea. Like it wasn't. It was just simply uh, that type of coincidence that um, this museum would be uh, would be there next to the restaurant where we wanted to go, and um, and catch some late lunch. But I also had kind of a, a, a not quite explicitly radio, but I had a sound walk coincidence earlier in in the same trip in the weekend is where we were staying in the Applegate Valley is a town called Jacksonville, Oregon, which had been, um, it's known for having been, uh, one of the main towns during the gold rush. So it was definitely a boom town in the, in the 19th century. Um, now it's kind of uh, you know kind of a, a center for the the wine region there and the wine industry. It's near the towns of Medford and Ashland, so it's pretty far south, uh, western Oregon, uh, relatively close to the California border. And they have uh, an outdoor venue and ongoing arts and music festival called Britfest, uh, named after uh, kind of an early town father whose last name is Brit, and. I was just checking out online to see, oh, goodness, they're starting to open it up. Maybe we'd get to see something, and, and they hadn't yet started programming. But I noticed that advertised there on the website was a soundwalk, And it's associated, actually, you get an app on Android or, or iOS, uh, and you download it and put on your headphones, and it uses GPS to play you uh, music to go along with areas in the town. Encouraging you to walk around uh, the downtown and other areas, so I, I wasn't able to, to cover the entirety of the town. Uh, I'll mention again, it was very very hot. This is not what a hot. sound walk is. <laughs> I, I just well, it, you're, it, well, it is because it, you're turning. experiencing you're experiencing the sounds that somebody wants you to to that they feel illustrates uh, the city. I think, but uh, so, uh, but what a sound walk? The the
2: word sound walk that I've uh, up until this moment uh, now I have to now I have to decide uh, if if this other kind of sound walk uh, is uh, takes precedent is you go you you walk in a new place like if, if Paul Reismandel visiting the town uh, for the first time had had walked down the streets uh, using a microphone and a pair of headphones to experience the sound of this landscape that you were visiting for the first time in a new way In a way of listening, right? So hearing, hearing things around you that, that are um, unique to the place where you are. So being present in the, in the place you're visiting, using your ears as, as the, as the most open, as the most open portal to having the experience. And this is the opposite. This is, this is putting on headphones and drowning oh, out the, the sounds drowning uh, out the sounds of the world that you're visiting and having Well, well, a you, you can't drown out
0: the sounds. And, uh, <laughs> you'll walk into traffic. But uh no, but I mean it it is similar though because it is something which a which a composer has created. Oh, okay. Right. So so right. So this it's original is original uh, music. This is original music that changes based upon where you are Neat. in 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 the town. Uh so the composer is Ellen Reed uh who who's worked in opera, sound design, film scoring. Um she won a Pulitzer Prize in 2019 for her opera Prism. Um and then she's a co-founder of something called the Luna Composition Lab. Uh, which is a mentorship for young, female-identifying, non-binary, and gender-nonconforming composers and is currently a creative advisor and composer-in-residence for the Los Angeles Chamber So Orchestra. I, wanna,
2: I apologize for being so forthright with my opinion about whether or not this qualifies as a sound walk. I'd like to offer my friendly, uh, friendly amendment. I think it should be called like a scored walk. And okay. the sound walk would be when you have a microphone that is open to the sounds around you. And, and then you share that. That's what I thought we were. I thought when Paul was offering us a sound walk that you went on a sound walk, I had assumed you, you'd taken a microphone, uh, and, and used sound, uh, to, to open yourself to, to the new experience of being out on the street. What, what you, what you were privy to was, uh, that an artist, uh, gave you a, a composition, a score for the walk that they, you, you then went on.
0: Yeah, and that it's I mean, the, the interesting thing is that it's it specifically uses GPS, yeah. to adjust the sounds oh. and the experience as a listener is that it's continuous. It's not as if uh, it's an abrupt change as if somebody has hit you know fast forward or hit another track. That's very exciting um, as you walk about, you know, and and, and the music is is sort of. Um, Minimalist, uh, you know, I'm not super educated in classical music, so I, I may fail in properly trying to categorize the subgenres in which Ellen Reed works, but um, it is sort of minimalist, it's it sort of a focus on sort of long tones and, and drone-like sounds, but, but uh, you know, in an orchestral setting, you know, with, with acoustic instruments. And did you catch um, the th-
2: transitions? Were you aware? Well, yeah, you
0: certainly hear as you walk along, because I would walk along and, and sort of like a flute would become more prominent, kind of with a note, drawing on a note or a violin, and it would recede into the background as I walked away. But if I walked back that way, it would it would come back into the foreground, wow. but very organically. So it is as if, you know, by your feet in a way, in a sense, you're playing the score a bit, right? You know, yeah. different sounds are associated with different uh, geolocations. And again, it's it covers... Um, what looks to me to be, you know, uh, at least a square mile, uh, you know, it's a fairly small town, but it, it covers its sort of downtown. Um, I experienced most of it in Brick Gardens, uh, which is around and about uh, the open air amphitheater where the uh, where the Brit Festival happens. But I also saw that it, it extended up into uh, a, a relatively adjacent cemetery as well as through the uh, the downtown uh, commercial area of of Jacksonville. Well, it Oregon. sounds
2: like an amazing piece of sound art, and a real incredible rival to the concept of soundwalk. And I'm willing to open my mind to the to the idea that maybe this also is soundwalking when a when a composer scores the walk that you're going to take, and then that the the GPS on your phone. Uh, transitions, different motifs for the different uh, landscapes and locations that you are physically standing in. It's very exciting to think of as a, as a, as a sound work, you know, here on Radio Survivor, we've cataloged quite a number of sound works. And how I was going
1: to say that Michelle Hilmes, who is encouraging us to use the word sound and work. I'll to take encompass,
2: it. I love it. Yeah, I thought
1: that might settle this
2: argument if we thought about
1: it as just, sound work. Well, it's
2: definitely sound work. <laughs> and it's a uh, it's it's a really exciting uh genre of sound work that i've that i'm you know i'm aware that it existed but i i don't think we've ever talked about it on radio survivor before so i don't blame them for using the word sound walk to describe it it's a very it's a rival it's a worthy rival for the term uh for for uh,
0: well like radio it can perhaps it can it can have a lot of applications yeah. it could be but, a big tent but we learned, in which we can walk we learned that yes.
2: i think you know jennifer brought it up uh two or three weeks ago that the, the one of the very first uh pieces of sound art uh, very first sound works uh, in the history of of re- the recorded medium of sound was a was a sound walk in egypt uh created by an egyptian man who also had a um had a relationship with the local radio station there uh, over a 100 years ago. I'm, oh, no, no, not quite, but getting close. The the more years that go by, the closer I get to being accurate when yeah, I say
1: 100 no. years ago. 1940s. Uh, okay,
2: in the 1940s, he took a sound walk with a
0: wire recorder. Yeah, so this uh, sound walk will be available through October 15th. Um, you can go to Britfest B R I T T F E S T dot O R G. We'll also have a link in our show notes at com slash podcast. This is episode number three zero six. And there's a nice little short video that gives you kind of a good sense of, of what that experience is doing the Ellen Reed uh, soundwalk. But I think it is is a really lovely kind of collaboration between sort of an arts organization and 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 the city in which it is situated. Well, if we want to catch up here, we've got a little bit of news to talk about, sort of a follow-up on some stories that we've been following uh, for, for quite some time here. The at whole radio time. Survivor. Um, so as we uh, record today, it is July 12th for us. This Our show will be released on July 13th and of 2021, of course, that is. And by all indications, it seems that most Franken-FM radio stations – will leave the air, if not permanently, at least temporarily, tomorrow, July 13th. It's a deadline for low-powered television stations to convert finally to full digital transmission. There is a a, a number of several dozen uh, of these stations that operate on TV Channel 6, which uh, folks who maybe uh, prior to digital transition live near sort of a, a full-power channel six TV station realized that you could hear the audio at the left end of your radio dial um, around about 87.7 FM. And since the digital TV transition, which happened in 2009, um, a few dozen of these enterprising uh, analog low-power television stations have decided to basically become radio stations uh, focusing their efforts and their programming on the audio side of the band, which can be heard on the FM right. dial, Paul, you've, rather than the, than the, than the video portion of their signal. Of,
2: of all of the things that you know about radio and all of the topics that you've covered on Radio Survivor, Franken FMs is really one of the most precious, like special. Um,
0: well, it's it's you know it's the it's the the grass that comes up through the pavement, or maybe the flower that that blossoms in the cracks uh, you, between the sidewalks. Mean,
1: well, and it has the best name yeah. ever. But, so, but much I like mean, much like Jennifer, I can take no
2: credit for the yeah, name. <laughs> much like Jennifer being uh, one of the world's uh, you know uh, foremost auth- writers of of college radio history and taking college radio tours, Paul, you sort of definitely uh, staked a claim writing about Franken FMs. Because uh, you know it's it's a it's a niche topic.
0: Well, yes, it, and, and certainly it's received you know coverage in right. in the radio press, radio world has sure. written about it extensively. I want to give credit where credit is due, but you know it is you know it, it is a service that wasn't intended to exist as radio. You have friends on the internet, friends of the radio program that you've
2: made because of your <laughs> yes. because of your Franken FM blogging,
0: and and it. It feels like an underdog in that way yeah. because it's just so difficult, by and large, to start a new radio station in this day and age um, that more often it's easier to purchase an existing station or license, which can be extremely expensive. And so the fact that uh, some enterprising TV operators took advantage of this accident of history that you can hear – Uh, the audio from their stations at the left end of the FM dial, which was not intended to be radio, was not allocated in the first place. You know, there are a lot of folks who want to root for that underdog. And then there are people in the radio industry who feel like it's an unfair advantage who, who think, well, if, if we're going to allow that to exist, perhaps the opportunity should be available to everyone who might want a radio station. It's
2: reminiscent a little bit of like the border blaster culture that we've learned about the history that we've talked about on radio survivor, where, where, uh, People who go into business, sort of with a with 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 a, a a business model that pretty much breaks the rules of of the industry, but then are able to um, you know to innovate and to to provide customers with something new. They're not always uh, good guys or bad guys in in the stories. Uh, there you know right. there's a there's an ambivalence to the work that they do.
0: Indeed, and, and I tend to have I tend to be ambivalent myself. Although I'll note that two stations will remain on the air, with what is called special temporary authority from uh, the FCC. It's not the end. <laughs> it's, well, I mean, it's, it's we, that's why I said the that, that they'll go. You know, that that the vast majority of these stations will go off the air temporarily, if not permanently, and we don't know which. Um, they have lobbied the FCC to stay on the air, uh, w- basically in a form in which they can switch over their television broadcast to digital and then maintain alongside of that an audio uh, signal that is analog and heard on FM dials. And so basically this experimental uh, broadcast is what uh, KBKF in San Jose, California will do. And now added to it is WRME in Chicago, Illinois, uh, most well known for being the flagship station of MeTV-FM. Uh, that so successful is the format now that there are uh, FM stations that are properly licensed as FM stations that air the format. But this is the original and flagship station that broadcasts on channel six in in Chicago. Um, it just so happens, and this is important that. The license for both of these stations is owned by the same company, Venture Technologies Group, uh, which uh, submitted this this application to the FCC to be allowed to to attempt this experimental uh, broadcast uh, of having digital television and analog FM. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but and and, and we've written about this on Radio Survivor. Is that what's important is that um, for the FCC that the television signal has to be like a real television signal, the digital one, with fully synchronized video and sound, basically meaning real television programming, and that then the analog audio portion can be separate programming, um, and they're testing to see can these things uh, cooperate together. But as of yet, uh, the FCC has not um, said anything at all about whether it intends to... Uh, go any further than this special experimental authority and whether it intends to uh, further take up the issue of whether or not uh, stations should be allowed, either television stations should be allowed to continue these analog broadcasts or if perhaps even uh, that little bit of bandwidth could be opened up uh, for radio stations in general. I mean, the last time we talked about this, Paul, I know because oftentimes
2: we... We you, we have framed these Franken FM stations as the, like underdogs as sort of the heroes of the story, but um, you reminded me that that the the way in which they got on the air was an accident and sort of a weird backdoor. And if 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 the United States was going to create a policy to to build to to allow some new radio stations to take up this this space on the dial. Um, uh, they could have done more policy work to make them uh, more welcoming to more non-commercial radio stations. This is this is a weird yeah, place a for commercial part of the band. It's a weird place yeah. for commercial radio to get on the air uh through a through
0: a leaky back door. And some one place where that's happened is in Brazil. Um you know, the Brazilian uh you Brazil has also transitioned to digital television. Um So there were also basically television stations situated to the left of the FM dial. um, And Brazil has started opening up uh, that now unused frequency space or less used frequency space to build more FM stations. That's coincident with Brazil basically transitioning away from AM radio altogether. So part of the idea is that it is FM frequency space that can be given over to, to former AM broadcasters. But that's basically, you know, reclaiming that that airspace uh, that we, you know, don't actually use for FM more or less. That you cannot uh, apply for a new station at eighty-seven. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, at eighty-seven point seven FM or eighty-seven point nine FM. Uh, those, you know, that, that's not something that you can right. currently get a new or license for in the United States. My
2: favorite policy proposal, uh, based on your travels in New Zealand, is you know. That they have a, a part of the radio spectrum that is um, left open to unlicensed broadcasters, to, to, to pirates who aren't pirates, to people to do pirate radio um, without breaking any laws. And that's just a part of the spectrum that is available to New Zealanders
0: uh, who want to get on the air. And we could have that. In the United States, it is simply just a policy proposal and that that would need to be taken up. And and that that could be an alternative where you would allow, uh, you know, a radio station with more power than what is currently permitted without a license. Right. The little tiny part 15 transmitters. But with some upper limit in, in New Zealand, it's one watt of power can cover maybe about a kilometer radius. Um, depending on, on where you cite your antenna. Yeah, there, why couldn't we have uh, 87.7 assigned to that instead? Um, you know, I'm sure there are uh, stakeholders an to in, in that American question. broadcasting that have, have <laughs> reasons against that, why they think it's a bad idea. But, you know, ultimately, you know, many changes that happen and the evolution of the of of our media but in particular how it uses uh, the electromagnetic spectrum it happens not just because of acts of congress um or because somebody at the fcc has an idea but because stakeholders from all walks come to the federal communications commission and propose new ways of looking at it. that's how low power fm happened and that's you know in in the course of uh, 21 years has you know Created the greatest flowering of community radio, I think we've seen in in global history, in terms of just the raw number of stations that have been able to go on the air, especially in a short amount of time. That all started with inspired activists who brought uh, proposals to the FCC and helped them make it true. Uh, other things could be true, and and as it is, uh, you know, these enterprising. Uh, Frank and FM operators are have proposed to the FCC that they should be able to continue uh, to broadcast and they're experimenting now with two. I remembered the know. name of the film.
2: It was A Face in the Crowd. Uh, what a great movie. What a great movie about with radio right at the center. Um, I don't know if it qualifies. Jennifer, have you seen Face in the Crowd recently? No. Uh, I don't. Paul. Yeah, that's so a different podcast. I want you guys to watch it and then we'll podcast about it. It's yeah. really good. And uh it's it's uh, I believe 1948, 1949, it's Andy Griffith plays uh the lovable villain. He's it's a very dark turn for for Mr. Andy Griffith, the young youthful, handsome Andy Griffith. Uh he's a he's a a bit of a con man, a bit of a He's he's like what if um what if uh uh what if Andy Griffith what if the body of Andy Griffith was inhabited by the the voice of of Woody Guthrie but the like soul of um Father Coughlin like question mark it's very interesting it's a I mean it's it's definitely an incredible script I, I know I, I think it was written and directed by Elia, Eliza Kazan who's who people who love film history will know more than me about his work. And oh, the, Elliot Kazan. Yeah. Thank you. And the stories he tells, um, it's a real humdinger about the, the dangers of demagoguery and the, the power of radio to sway audiences. And it, it's, a it's a great one. And I finally watched it. You know, I think we talked about it uh, for the Turner classic movies episode, but I'm not sure if we did. I don't know if that I don't know. It. Yeah, now I'm not now I'm not even 100% certain, but it was on my list and I finally saw it uh before it before it was uh, booted off the streaming service, one of the streaming services that I pay for. Um and it's a real incredible radio movie. It also features um a young woman who is a radio producer in her hometown and uh, like we were talking, Jennifer, earlier about you know depictions of college radio or radio on films that are bad. You know, this was a this was not such a bad depiction of a of a you know of a of a aggressive female radio producer from the '40s who who'd go out into the field, you know, not literally the field, who but who'd, who'd go out with a with a piece of tape, a tape machine to try to make radio um, in her town is pretty great.
1: Yeah, you know, that's amazing. And I definitely want to see that now. I feel like when I was watching that marathon of TCM radio-themed movies, there were, you know, that era in 1940s, there were definitely depictions of women who were working in radio stations. Um, You know, it, it wasn't an oddity. There were strong characters. And I loved... I love seeing that. Yeah. Um yeah. don't
2: don't get too excited though. The character <laughs> takes a takes a nasty uh turn. You know, her agency is sort of stripped away as the film <laughs> proceeds and she loses her she loses her marbles for love and oh, spoiler no, alert. Nothing
1: but, nothing is perfect. Yeah. Um as you're mentioning this, I'm thinking about uh, because I try to watch radio theme films whenever I can and I think it was Happenstance I was watching Times Square um which was from uh, I think around 1980 and and it's this sort of shock jock DJ Times late night DJ in New York who is speaking directly to the kids on the street to the runaways and and giving like terrible advice like basically telling them to rebel and
2: um huh I and, just you know, that's fascinating he, I-
1: He's like the worst person to have what's the talking name of the movie?
2: to you Times square Times square. I just watched a uh, fisher king that that starts in a radio studio in the eighties um with a shock jock character who speaks uh, harsh harsh advice into his microphone for for the lulls uh although that's not what they called it in the eighties but uh and then and then the you know the repercussions i won't i won't talk about the plot but that's um that's one of my favorite shock jock
0: depictions Wait, on the i period. once owned that movie on laser disc yeah. that's oh nice
1: i mean there's um, so many talk i i feel like we talked about this in the tcm episode too that that we seem to have so many of these um uh, Representations of talk show hosts, rather than radio. Well, I guess we get radio DJs too, but often you have these talk show hosts and shock jocks and um, right and uh, you know I and, and college radio. You know, I would love to see a college radio representation in one of these nineteen forties movies. You know, I don't even know if that happened. Like, what is the earliest college radio? I've seen some. I've seen some film inside college radio stations from from way back when but I don't know that I've seen a commercial release a fictionalized right. Right. Uh, production set in a college radio station an or agno- even showing a college radio station right. in the early days.
2: An acknowledgement from Hollywood that college radio exists which it always has since the beginning of
0: radio. But well, I, I think there's a se- I, I, you know, my sense of it and Jennifer, you might be able to be more articulate than I here is that as a distinct form of media i don 't know that in the popular mind college radio takes much shape until we get to the sixties and seventies in in that right and as you, as your research has shown and in, in much of what we 've learned here, you know often college radio stations are also sort of you know they are it 's radio it's it's it 's the classroom with the airwaves on the one hand, or the programming in certain ways is not is indistinguishable from say a commercial station it just happens to be run by students right and 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 i think that part of perhaps the dramatic appeal of college radio yeah. in other in, in the way we we think of it now comes from the fact that it's associated with rebellion yeah the baby or associated with the, counterculture the baby boomer uh, the baby boomer moment of college radio and it's how
2: that, how that entire generation like sort of framed its opposition to, to to its parents' generation and the rebellion there.
1: It makes a lot of sense. And that's when, you know, I mean, this requires further research, but it seems to be that's when you start to see it as it might appear in a movie or a TV show, you know, that was more likely to happen. I don't know. I would say eighties onward. Um, I can't. I can't think of a college radio depiction before that, but I. I could be wrong. Um, and and high school radio too. I've I've seen in nineteen eighty shows and pirate radio and nineteen eighty shows and movies. Well, and
0: there, there was a proliferation too. Like um, I think there were more, simply more stations going into the sixties and seventies, and you you know you can think of how many stations were founded or stations that moved. F- onto the broadcast airwaves or full power broadcast airwaves too. I mean, I, I suspect that that's at least part of it as well. They simply became more common.
1: Well, yeah. And and really, I mean, you think about the number of people on college campuses who aren't aware of their college radio stations. And, you know, so it's not something that was at the forefront of people's minds. And And in the, you know, say the 1940s and 50s, you had – a huge number of campus-only radio stations, but that's still – that's an obscure form of media just on college campus. And then maybe after that, you had stations expanding onto cable. And so, yeah, I guess it's decidedly not mainstream. So why would it end up in a Hollywood movie?
0: And, and also what would the it, – it's is how does it act as dramatic advice? Device right I think would be the question right? you know where I think as college radio develops and becomes had develops a cultural relevancy right that's still that's relevant to the mainstream but a little outside in, in the seventies and eighties that 's when we also therefore see it depicted more often because it can be it it can take uh the you know it it can embody rebellion it can embody uh, a non mainstream cultural force that 's still familiar enough right
1: exactly Um,
0: because i wonder you know what i've heard of like say college radio stations that exist in the 1940s you know maybe it could be the site of interpersonal student drama but it's uh, you know it doesn't seem like the radio station itself too often was itself the site of controversy um, as as it would happen but perhaps not you know again uh, we'd love to hear from listeners if you know of a depiction of a college radio station in in visual, especially, uh, you know, perhaps uh, movies, but also television prior to, say, 1970. Um, send us a line, podcast, at radiosurvivor.com. We'd love to know. I want to make a quick note that I what I did learn while I was at the um, Radio Days Museum um, in talking to uh, Dennis, the guy who runs it as well, uh, there were flyers about, is that there is actually the Northwest Vintage Radio Society uh, that is based out of the Portland area. It seems like they have weekly meetings. I don't know if they currently do, but at some point when they made this flyer that, that I have in my hand, had uh, weekly meetings in Oregon City, uh, which is uh, a small town about 20 minutes south of, of Portland. Um, you could and call it is really for it, you could call radio it a suburb. collectors.
2: You could call it a suburb of Portland, but you'd be wrong because it's it's the original. Uh, it's the original terminus of the Oregon Trails.
0: It's the first city. So as far as I can tell, um, you know, it's it's principally about, uh, you know, r- you know, radio receivers and such. I mean, I think they're embracing of all aspects of of vintage uh, radio, and that they also, though, it, I mean, it's definitely I I do not know. I'll have to look more into it because I have not since I uh, in the few days since I I got back. Um, to what extent they really do encompass, uh, have members across the Northwest, since it is not, you know, the Oregon uh, Vintage Radio Society. It is definitely the Northwest, but they mention uh, British Columbia and Vancouver, uh, British Columbia um, uh, within their materials here.
1: I, I love that you mentioned this and also that you happened upon this museum because I feel like there are a lot of these regional radio museums that are super obscure and, you know, I run across them um, and and probably people have a similar experience to you where they just all of a sudden they run across this interesting little museum. And, you know, it happened to me in Ireland a long time ago where I visited a radio museum that was located in a jail museum because a radio station in Cork in Ireland uh, was established and it was in this jail. I think in the 1920s, and then they mm. happened to have a museum there too, full of memorabilia. And they have you know like old radio equipment set up, and um, and the jail was also a wax museum. So <laughs> I love wax museums, and I love radio. So it basically was a must visit. And I didn't happen upon it; I I knew it was there, um, but the radio museum was closed, and I had to talk my way in because you know, like you, I was like, this is like the whole reason I came here. I really want to see the radio museum. And they let me in um, to take a look around and they had a wax figure at some of the radio equipment. And we have that on our radio survivor Facebook page actually is that's the, that's from that radio museum in Cork. Um, But it's really interesting how these, these regional, people seem to come together regionally to celebrate radio.
0: Well, right. I mean, to celebrate. And also, I mean, you know, I think if you're into vintage radios, there's certainly the ability to trade uh, knowledge, uh, probably help one another restore, right? Because much of the hobby often with vintage radios is getting them working. Um, That's also why, I mean, uh, why uh, there's still a, a market a lot for the Part 15 unlicensed AM transmitters is that there are people who like to be able to broadcast, even if just within their own home, uh, old, you know, old time radio programming or uh, vintage you know, music to their old time radios, right? So that they can sort of recreate that experience in their own homes and enjoy that radio, you know, not because often they'll just be AM or shortwave and what, there won't be a lot of that sort of programming left, right? You sort of mostly have sports talk uh, Least time and conservative talk, and you know, getting to hear uh, the adventures of Superman, and the Lone Ranger, um, necessitates a little bit of creativity, and and you'll see explicitly, you'll see some of these AM part fifteen transmitters explicitly marketed as for use with your vintage. Uh, AM radios. So I'm certain that a lot of that exchange, and why they're regional too, because, it, so you can come together and and talk about, and, and, and I think interest in that preservation, right? Uh, that, that that these radios not just simply be junked or landfilled because they no longer uh, seem relevant or uh, in, in, in the modern era. But yeah, they're probably in most major metropolitan areas or or regions of the United States, if not goodness, probably the world yeah, so before um, you There's some you know, sort of organization like this.
1: Before you throw out or let your neighbor throw out their vintage radio equipment and radio magazines, search around for your local radio society.
2: Folks, I looked it up. Face in the crowd was made in nineteen fifty-seven. <laughs> I was ten years off and I apologize for putting the air out there uh in the podcast. Uh, without doing my research prior uh, which makes a lot of sense since a tape machine uh, in the field is plays a prominent role in the plot of the film so of course it's 1957 um, a tape machine out in the world instead of 1948, 1949 where there couldn't possibly be a, a woman working at a southern radio station in the United States taking a tape machine into a a prison to record the voices of prisoners it's a very 1957 uh cutting edge storyline great film highly recommended and i got the date wrong you've been listening to radio survivor the podcast version thank you so much for listening you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts we're also on the internet at radiosurvivor.com where there are show notes for today's episode this is episode number 306 we love to hear from our listeners. Email us. The address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We're also on the social media networks of Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we love to hear from you. And you can comment on our posts. Radio Survivor is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To find out more how you can support what we do, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Jennifer Waits. Paul Rees and myself. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.